Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Merrin Deepwell in this episode. Merrin is the Chief Executive Officer of the Association for Learning Technology in the UK. She has led ALT for 15 years across half of its history to date, and her work exemplifies all aspects of open education, including open leadership, open licensing, and transferring a leading journal into an open format. Marin is a keen advocate for giving educational technology a deliberate seat at the senior leadership table and for better institutional policy to support it. I'm talking with Dr. Marin Deepwell, who is CEO of the Association of Learning Technology, ALT, and professional coach. Marin's involvement with ALT goes way back to 2008, and she was instrumental in it adopting open access practices and also in ALT becoming a virtual team. She also shares ideas for virtual teams in a book, podcast, and taster course, and is an ongoing advocate for innovation in technology and education. Marin, it is great to be talking with you. Hello there. Really delighted to be on the podcast. Fantastic. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, I've been with the association since 2008, and I actually have a background in art and anthropology. So, I originally trained as a sculptor and did a PhD in anthropology, which is how I started working in learning technology. So, I was one of those graduate students um, who worked with professors who did not love technology and who was employed on a summer intern studentship to build Moodle modules and help staff get online um, fully. Um, you know, this is a long time ago. So at that time, having a Moodle course was not a given. Um, and that's how I started working um, for ALT. I was still a, a student at the time. But then since 2012, um, when I was appointed as CEO, um, I've really enjoyed working with, you know, our community here in the UK. So for those of you who may be not familiar with ALT, we represent three and a half thousand um, members here in the UK. And we're the leading professional body for learning technology. And my work is, as you already mentioned, uh, really focused around openness in education. So um, I was part of the team that um, established our journal research in learning technology as an open access publication mm -hmm. um, and also contributed to a study which at the time was uh, a groundbreaking first for professional bodies in the UK as we were one of the first who took their journal into a gold open access model. Yeah. And also later on um, from 2015, 16 onwards, working very closely with the Open Education Conference here in the UK, the OER Conference, um, which really, I think, inspired um, my practice. And I'm really interested in open leadership and um, sort of transparent ways of working, um, which is how the sort of move for me from online learning to online working came along. Mm. Um, but also, I think of one of my other sort of areas that I've written about a lot and, and spoken about a lot, and, you know, mostly with other wonderful colleagues at Alt, too many to mention, is around professional development and empowerment for learning technologists at different levels. Um, and particularly thinking about our career path in progression in that career path. Mm. So one of the areas that I've done a lot of work around was 
providing professional accreditation via ALT and looking at different pathways for progression. So we introduced um, more senior pathways a few years ago and working with colleagues from all over the world, really, who are interested in that particular um, sort of development of, of leadership capability. Mm, excellent. So you started off by supporting professors to uh, put courses online. That's right. Um, I'm not sure how much things might have changed over the intervening years. I, I think there are still some roles that are quite active in doing that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think I'm also very much the IT support for my family, which I'm sure many listeners are, you know, <laughs> if, if you end up in a job, where you know enough about, you know, the, the internet and how it works. Um, I got a lovely text message from my mum yesterday who said, the internet is broken, please come and fix it. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're DMing me via an online service, so surely you must be online. But, you know, that part of my world has never really changed. And I think it still very much applies to all the leaders and institutions I work with now, um, because I think there is such a broad spectrum of, you know, confidence when it comes to how to really do online learning and how to build strategies for sustainable approaches. Mm. Here in the UK in particular, but I think that applies globally as well. We have everything from institutions at the cutting edge where every classroom is kitted out and every teacher gets CPD that they need to, you know, empower themselves and their students to make effective use of technology. Mm. But we also have plenty of individuals and institutions who kind of hope it will all die down and that we'll just return back to, you know, either the hated or the good old ways, depending on what your viewpoint is. And that really it's it's just a fad. And that there hasn't been a paradigm shift several times over the last, you know, three decades in how we learn, teach and assess. Mm. Um, and out our association, we celebrate 30 years this year. So, Great. you know, it's definitely not the case that we don't know about these things. You know, we have 30 years of research, of case studies, you know, um, policy making. We have a lot of experience in this sector, but... Many people are still discovering it for the very first time right now. Mm. So your time with Alt then um, goes back to half of its history, 15 years. That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What can you tell us about the ideas and themes that your work has provided across that time, um, particularly those themes that are perhaps most relevant today? So I think there's a couple of key themes. Um, I've been reflecting on this a lot because we're preparing to kind of celebrate 30 years of Alt. And I think initially, um, particularly when I was involved, you know, our key role and that of our members was really around advocacy, trying to get people on board with the idea that they could use technology and opening up their, you know, eyes and minds to the potential. And I think in some ways that is still relevant today, but probably much less so because the pandemic has just simply forced so many more people to engage with it, whether they wanted to or not. So I think the, you know, the scale of adoption is much greater now than it was five years ago. Mm -hmm. But what we are also seeing is, you know, we developed more criticality towards technology. What are the limitations? What are the, you know, downsides? And one of the pieces of work I was very involved in over the last few years that I think is becoming more and more relevant is an ethical framework for learning technology. Um, it's called FELT. It's an open framework that anyone can adopt, use and download. And the idea was really behind the framework to find some baseline against which you could start thinking about new technologies and tools you want to adopt. 
and also have conversations with vendors because I think particularly if you're not technically brilliant um you know I have no idea how some of the more complex technologies that we use in education really work kind of behind the scenes or you know I can't really technically interrogate it but I think we can you know interrogate processes in other ways Mm. conceptually and think about what what data footprint do students generate? How is that data monetized? How is it used? How is it protected? And I think the you know omnipresent discussion on large language models like ChatGPT at the moment mm-hmm. um, really highlights that we do need to address these issues and that we need to address them now. Yeah. Um, so I think that work on that framework, and we published around that um, both in terms of the making of the framework and some resources alongside it. I think that is one of the most influential pieces of work that we've done over the last few years. And and I think I wanted to mention one other point, which is around innovation, Mm. um, because I feel that that is probably the area where we currently in our community see the least innovation. And um, I don't want to do a disservice to the people who work so hard, but I think at the moment we're seeing so much focus on scaling up on making provision, Mm. you know, consistent across all students, all classrooms, all institutions. We're talking a lot around, you know, practical issues like accessibility and, um, you know, how to design courses and how to use tools for greater digital inclusion. And these are all key issues, but I think they're very focused on getting everybody up to the same level of proficiency and literacy. Mm. And what we're not seeing as much is kind of, you know, a whole reimagining sort of what is our vision for it? You know, how could it be, you know, more fun, more engaging, more creative? Um, those sorts of concerns, I think, in my view, have kind of slightly drifted into the background in the last few years. And, you know, we've all been focused on the pandemic. So that seems to make sense. Yeah. I don't think you can leave us hanging on that, though, Marin. So given that you've introduced that particular topic, what is your vision? Um, given everything you've seen over the last 15 years and more, uh, given the perspective that you have across the UK in particular, but um, no doubt globally, what are some of the things we should be aiming for for innovation and in learning teaching technologies? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I have all the answers. I have some ideas. <laughs> so I think one of my um, one of the key points that I think we see successful institutions learn is that learning technologists, no matter what their job title is, no matter their, you know, seniority from technical to, you know, very strategic roles, they need a seat at the table. Mm. You know, learning technology is not a content management or production affair. This goes much deeper than that. You really need to think at a strategic level with people around the table who speak both academic and technical languages and who understand how these two worlds coincide. Yeah. Now, I don't think it's a recipe for success to outsource that process. I don't think it's a recipe for success to just focus on the production values of the videos that might be in your VLE or you know whatever the equivalent is thereof. Mm. Um, mm. I think you need the people and you need to invest in the people. And that is, I think, against the narrative of sort of efficiencies, cost-cutting, you know, using technology more and more. Like, believe me, if I met the chat agent that could solve that problem, it would be absolutely welcome. But we are nowhere near solving that problem. And so we need the human beings and invest in them. Mm. I think that's one of my key points. 
so, so a seat at the table, typically around the um, the executive table, there'll be someone looking after the digital technology yeah. and someone possibly looking after all academic affairs. So what you're saying, though, is there needs to be someone sort of in the middle who combines strengths of both of those roles, able to innovate, think about the future. Yeah, and we need to think about that from the ground up. You know, di- digital education isn't an add-on. Um, you know, technology is within the fabric of education and all the things we do and in all the learners' expectations too. So I think that is one of the, the key points. And that brings me to the other point, which is in my you know time at ALT, I've worked across all sectors of education. We as a community include everyone from you know school teachers and vocational education professionals, all the way up to you know professors and senior administrators in higher education and the the world of work. And one thing, you know, one conversation I've never stopped having is the conversation that in our sector, in our institution, we can't really share or learn from others because it's so unique in its context and its challenges. Yeah, And that is, I think, in some ways really endearing. It's so great that we're all so passionate about the specific challenges of our sectors and institutions. Mm. But it also really stops wider knowledge sharing. And I think in the tech sector, we see much more, you know, collaboration in the sense that people just base work on each other's things and move on with it and and it accelerates very fast and I think in education we accelerate very slowly and we don't like sharing that much and there's a sort of syndrome at least here in the UK sort of if it isn't made in-house it can't possibly be good (laughs) I think it's a global phenomenon yeah right (laughs) and I I think there's a few institutions who've started to change that paradigm who've adopted open licensing, who walk the walk of open policy making on an institutional level. You know, maybe here in the UK, we could say, you know, University of the Highlands and Islands, the University of Leeds, yeah. the University of Edinburgh. I'm, I'm sure there are many others and um, that don't come to mind just now. But there is, I think, so little of that. And there is very little of that across sectors. So I feel that is one of the, you know, real hopes for me for the future and I'll is, you know, hopefully one organization amongst many that help with this effort to really facilitate cross-sector learning and sharing of knowledge and sharing of resources. Excellent. Marin, it's now, actually, we're a third of the way through uh, 2023. Uh, A lot's obviously happened over the last few years with the pandemic. Um, I'd imagine uh, your conferences are suddenly being personneled by three-dimensional beings again. Uh, So the world (laughs) is is coming to a a reasonably... uh, good state of normal. Mm-hmm. What are your observations about online learning and education right at this moment? I think it's been really interesting to see how little and how much has changed, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I, I think in some ways um, there is so much of a desire and, you know, understandably so to go back to normal that there is a whole, um, you know, a whole behavior around, you know, the classrooms that are, being revisited and lectures that are being taken place in person again. And then, you know, we're also seeing those being empty and no students turning up. Like, I'm not sure um, how that is globally, but certainly from the work that I know of in the UK and in the Western Hemisphere, students are not turning up in the same way as they did prior to the pandemic. And their need to have flexibility introduced into 
you know, blended, high flex, hybrid online delivery is so much greater now. Mm. So I think what one of the things I'm seeing is that a lot of institutions are trying to practically come to terms with how to adapt to this need to provide flexibility whilst also operating in ways that are sustainable to them practically, financially, you know, that they can make their staff do. Um, I recently had a conversation with someone in the US and they said, we can't stop our staff from wearing slippers. <laughs> How can we make them wear shoes again? <laughs> you know? um, and I think, you know, for all of us, there's been so much of a break from, you know, what we expected to be as you business as usual in 2020 and 2021 and for some that still continues more so I think that sort of adjustment to flexibility is a huge hugely varied picture at the moment and many different institutions tackle that in lots of different ways which is where we come back to my knowledge sharing point yeah. I think there is quite a lot of jockeying for position right now about you know oh we solved this come to us and study with us you know which is understandable but it also means that we're seeing institutions around the world reinvent the wheel and solving the same problems as to, you know, how to deliver flexible learning in ways that that actually works and benefits students. Mm. So mm. I think that is one of the key points and, and that relates closely to the other, which is around assessment. You know, we're all talking at the moment about, you know, essays and plagiarism and chat GPT, but we've seen a huge sort of revolution in online assessment in the last few years. And in my role, I do a lot of work with the UK um, agencies around quality assurance and inspection and kind of in academic integrity. And they really, <laughs> I'm not sure if they have moved on in the same way as practice, you know, and I think our frameworks and quality assurance standards don't really yet reflect the reality of what's possible in terms of online assessment mm. and in terms of, you know, different approaches to assessment, maybe less traditional approaches to assessment. Yeah. So I think there's some interesting work happening in online learning around building trust with students and educating them around, you know, the, the value of the experiences and the learning rather than trying to kind of you know, cheat the system or beat the system um, if indeed there there is such a system in place. So that is one area that I'm very curious about how that will develop because here in the UK, I think we're very conservative with a small C when it comes to, you know, assessment and regulation around assessment. And there's many professional bodies, you know, out there who are like, no, it has to be a written exam, an exam hall, you know, with pen and paper, and there can't possibly be an alternative to that. So I feel that is one area where we're going to see a lot of developments, hopefully, in the next year or two. I'm keen to pick up on two themes, actually, um, prompted by you. But one is uh, the move uh, for ALT to a virtual organisation, uh, which I think predated the pandemic. So there was clearly mm -hmm. some um, prescient thought there, uh, which the whole world uh, really needed to benefit from. The second, though, is your mention of assessment. So it is something that's, I think, quite a hot topic at the moment internationally. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in your views as to where assessment might go. So is it okay to pick up on those two themes, um, the order you prefer? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's pick up maybe assessment first, because yeah. I, had a, I had a really interesting keynote recently at the OER conference by Dave Cormier, who was talking about pedagogies of abundance. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think he made a really powerful argument that, you know, in an age of abundance and an age of information abundance you know the 
the paradigm of you know scarcity teaching and assessment where you you know anticipate that there's only one place you get the learning one set of textbooks from which you get the information one teacher who can lead your education just doesn't work anymore you know and and, and i think that is such a key thought that i think many people in education haven't really started to grapple with yet and i am very interested i must admit I don't know half as much about Dave's work as I should do, but what I'm very interested in is what, you know, the assessment in an age of abundance looks like. And I think, you know, Dave's starting to explore that in in his work, kind of thinking about building completely different relationships with learners and, you know, educating fellow educators around, you know, how you guide learners through an age of information abundance and how they can develop those skills to, you know, interrogate the information that they find and use the tools at their disposal. Um, so I'm very interested in that in that space. So that is that is, I think, definitely worth further reading if you haven't already come across that. Yeah. Um, and to pick up on your other point around becoming a virtual organization, so we made this transition in 2017 and. From the 1st of February 2018, we had closed all our offices or our one office, which was a grand name for a room that we rented within a university in the UK. And this was really um, a big strategic decision for us and very different from pandemic transitions where people had to make do within a week or a day or even an afternoon. You know, take your laptop, go to your kitchen table. We'll see you in a year. Mm. Um, This was not how our context worked. Um, we basically, you know, as a small independent charity, did the maths and saw that, you know, what we spend on one office um, could employ one more person. Yeah. And we thought, you know, this would be a better benefit to the organization. But more importantly than finance was the strategic challenge. Um, we were based at Oxford at the time, which was a beautiful town, um, but it's nearly as expensive to live in as London. And as a smaller charity, you know, we employ fewer than 10 people. We certainly um, couldn't compete with, you know, recruiting people from all around the country who wanted to work for a specific organization, but we employed mainly people who were locally based, whether or not, you know, they had a particularly strong sort of commitment to working for us. And we really needed to find a way to attract higher caliber candidates into the organization. Mm. And beyond that, we also recognized as a national organization, you know, our members are based all across the UK, which, you know, is not the biggest country, but it is bigger than one town. And so we thought that if we could have a staff team, which was based all across the UK, we could work much more closely in partnership with members. So we spent nearly a year um, planning and executing that transition in kind of consultation with staff and unions and changing our employment structure from the ground up. And I think that is one of the things that I was so interested in when the pandemic hit is that we saw a lot of sort of, you know, flexing of established structures that were really designed to provide institutions with an employment and operational framework based on an office model. Mm. And then they were like trying to build on top of that and say, oh, now we're suspending this policy or we're just working around this or we're introducing a new flexible working policy on top of that. And in my experience, that causes a lot of long-term problems 
Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book about our transition and how we established practices that reflected being a virtual organization from the ground up. Uh, so, Maren, the research you'd most like to see, uh, given your perspective, uh, given everything you've seen over the last 15 years, plus also your cross-sector um, re- representation, if you could commission any piece of research, had any budget, what would you most like to commission? Where would your research money go? Oh, definitely around practical, ethical approaches to technology and education. Mm. Um The piece of work that I mentioned earlier around establishing this ethical framework for learning technology um, is just a drop in the ocean, really. And Mm -hmm. we've been compiling case studies and example policies, and it's made me aware of how little there is out there. There are some fantastic people doing research in this um, space, like, for example, Anne-Marie Scott, who's until recently based at Athabasca University, but there's not nearly enough. And... A lot of what's out there is very hard to apply practically. Mm. So that is the space where I feel, you know, I would definitely put research money if I had any. Mm. What what sort of solutions would you be looking for? Would it be a case of um, draft policies and practices? What what would be the the breakthrough there? I think it's two-part, really. Firstly, we would have to establish some case studies that demonstrate to senior managers and decision makers why this is an important topic. Mm. I think, um, you know, in a research context, we all understand that ethics clearance and ethical considerations are key. Um, I don't see why this is not the same in the practice of learning technology. Just because you're not conducting research, um, surely learning and teaching should, you know, should require an ethical dimension. So particularly when it comes to technology, we can't really interrogate. And we've seen a lot of examples of, you know, student data ending up in places or in business plans that that we didn't anticipate. So I think that would be half of it. Um, I think making consistent and convincing arguments to leaders is very challenging. It sounds like a kind of nice to have, you know, slightly elusive, you know, if if you've solved all other problems, then you can talk about ethics. And um, it sounds a bit flippant maybe, but that is really my experience um, of trying to make this argument. And I think the second part would be, to empower, again, maybe through case studies or maybe just, you know, horizon scanning, empower individuals who are in charge of these um, processes of implementation and procurement to very practically approach key issues around, you know, what sort of questions would you ask suppliers? What sort of information do you need to give staff? How do you need to educate students? Mm. Just so we can all make more informed choices around the platforms and tools that we use. And I think that is really key to developing a more balanced relationship with technology. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about digital proficiency and we're thinking about how the changes from generation to generation um, people use technology more and develop more instinctive familiarity with it. Yeah. But I think when you put it in a learning, teaching and assessment context, you need to have a different level of proficiency, a different level of literacy, um, not how to use it, but how does it use you? So I think that's a key question that we're not addressing enough right now. Yeah. So is that concern mainly to do with third-party licensing or is it um, with your local university that you're enrolled with? Is it both? Just trying to get a sense of the scope of um, ethical shift you'd like to see. 
So I think there's certainly a third party dimension in that, but I think there's also something about how decision making is taking place within, you know, administration and teaching. So for example, we're seeing quite a few tools that are, you know, able to flag, for example, if a student isn't engaging enough or dashboards that might show, you know, progress or might flag issues and, you know, maybe prompt human intervention. And I guess working across sectors, one thing I know for sure is that, you know, the typical learner that we can model a dashboard on doesn't exist yeah. now. And we already know how incomplete the data sets are that these tools are modeled on and what inherent biases might be in them. Yeah. So I'm I'm very concerned, like, for example, tools like proctoring. If you don't fit the mold that these tools were taught in, that can have an extremely detrimental effect on your chances of success in this assessment process. Or if you don't live alone in a quiet room, you know, I'm so fortunate. I live in an in a house where I have a dedicated office space that no one comes into if I close the door. Yeah. But, you know... If you have to sit and crouch in front of your bathtub because that's the only space in the house where, you know, the proctoring service will, you know, be satisfied that you're not looking at other things or distracted, you know, what about if you're a carer or you live with your small children? Mm. So I think that is the kind of issues that we really need to address more widely. They aren't nice to have. They are key concerns. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. So, Marin, two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and someone else who you think might otherwise have an important perspective to share. So I'm going to, um, I've been so inspired by looking at actually who's been previously on this um, podcast. And one person who's influenced me a lot over the course of my career and who I've known, you know, for I think over 10 years now is Catherine Cronin. Um, she is a independent scholar um, focused on critical and social justice approaches in digital open and higher education. Mm. Catherine is extremely inspiring um, educator and is currently working on a book about higher education for good, teaching and learning futures with Laura Chernovich. So um, I think that's coming out later this year in 2023. Mm. And if you haven't discovered um, Catherine's work yet, I would certainly um, recommend it. I think what's really inspired me and influenced me in terms of Catherine's work is, you know, her thinking around open education and particularly kind of walking the walk as well as talking the talk. Mm. Um, she's really inspired me in and opened my eyes to, you know, new perspectives around inequality and equity that I hadn't, you know, explored as much before. But also Catherine and I have both been active in the Fem EdTech network. Yeah. And um, one of the things she's taught me a lot as a as a person as a woman is around you know feminist values in education and in leadership mm, mm. excellent and i think you mentioned um rike yeah that's right so um i'm gonna try and get her name right but rike tof norgard is um based in denmark and um an educator and futurist who um is uh, i think she's associate professor at the danish school of education at aarhus university and I've recently gotten more familiar with Rika's work and one of the things that really jumped out at me around her work was uh, thinking around you know different futures of education 
Um, she described it in a, in a recent talk that, you know, many people start thinking about the future by focusing on what's the next step. So how do I get from where I am to where I want to go? Yeah. And one of the ways, um, and I'm simplifying and paraphrasing um, not very well here, and you should really check out Rika's work for, for more eloquent explanation. But one of the things she mentioned was that, you know, to really make the most of our thinking around the future, we need to start with building that vision of where we want to go, not how we're going to get there, and really be passionate about making that future be very detailed, be very um, real, really think about what we want to achieve and then work backwards in terms of the steps of, you know, how we get from the future we want from where we are now. Mm, and that was a really powerful way of thinking to me because I think in educational technology, we often think about, you know, the current crisis, the current issue, this academic year, how do we get from this VLE to the next upgrade? How do we get from this piece of research to the next publication? And we very rarely get the chance to look up, step back and take a breath mm. and think, okay, you know, in 10 years, in 20 years, where do we want to be outside of marketing videos from tech companies? <laughs> what is our vision? for that professional practice. And I think mm. that I found a really hopeful message and that left me really inspired. Mm, excellent, very, very interesting message. Marin, thank you, it's been a privilege talking with you. Um, really learned a lot from you during this conversation. Thank you so much for being a leader of online learning. Absolute pleasure to be here, thank you. You can learn more about Marin and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.